0: I am Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Laurel Shader. She is a research scientist at the Silent Spring Institute, where she leads the Institute's water quality research on highly fluorinated chemicals, which you may have heard referred to as PFAS, or PFAS, P-F-A-A-S and other contaminants of emerging concern. Her research focuses on characterizing PFAS exposures from drinking water, understanding the health effects associated with these compounds, identifying other sources of these exposures, such as food packaging, and investigating the socioeconomic disparities in exposures to drinking water contaminants. Dr. Shader has gained nationwide recognition as an expert on PFAS contamination and water quality. She has been quoted widely and interviewed widely on NPR. She's been interviewed in the Washington Post, the Dr. Oz Show, Chemical and Engineering News, and Environmental Health News. She is a technical advisor on community assistance and is vice chair of the Contaminants of Emerging Concern Committee for the New England Water Environment Association. Dr. Shader earned her M.S. and Ph.D. in Environmental Engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and an S.B. in Environmental Engineering Science from MIT. She has taught ecology and environmental engineering courses at MIT and Northeastern University, and she currently holds an appointment as a visiting scientist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Shader.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: What is an, an S.B.?
1: It's a bachelor's degree.
0: Oh, I see. Okay.
1: a a BS, but at MIT, we called it an SB.
0: Okay. All right. Well, you've (laughs) got a solid background in environmental issues, and that's exactly what we need in explaining what PFAS are. And as we were talking prior to the show... We were talking about some of the different titles and names that these compounds have, and they're really complicated. And I think for the average person, you know, highly fluorinated chemicals, what are they and where are they in our environment?
1: So PFAS represents the name of a broad family of chemicals. So PFAS itself stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, which is a whole mouthful to say. It's thought that there are at least 4,700 PFAS compounds on the global market. And while PFAS itself may not be a household name, there are many everyday products that we're all familiar with that contain PFAS. So these are widely used in a whole host of nonstick, stain resistant, waterproof, and grease proof products. So think of your Gore-Tex jacket or Scotch guarded carpets or upholstery. Teflon pans, and they're in products where we might not suspect they'd show up. Certain types of dental floss, microwave popcorn bags, and fast food wrappers. So these are a part of our daily lives, and they go by many different names for the individual chemicals, so PFOS, PFOA. So the terminology is quite complicated. Some people just call them forever chemicals because they are highly fluorinated chemicals, and those carbon-fluorine bonds are super strong. So the chemical structures are very resistant to degradation. So some people think that they might persist on geological
0: timescales. Oh my goodness. So we should talk about some of the health risks associated with these chemicals. For people who have greater exposures, and I've looked at different maps, and it looks like there are some hot spots with regard to contaminated water. So The Northeast is one. I saw some places in California that had heavier contamination in their water supplies than others, but they appear to be ubiquitous across the country for the reasons that you mentioned. They're in everything. But what are some of the specific health risks associated with exposures to these compounds?
1: So PFAS are a really wide range of chemicals. Most of the information about health effects that we have focus just on a handful, PFAS, PFOA, and several other related chemicals within this much broader family. So researchers have found associations between PFAS exposure and a wide range of health effects, including effects on the thyroid, high cholesterol, obesity, low birth weight, cancer, and effects on the immune system.
0: Hmm. Now, I have a fact sheet that the Silent Spring Institute produced just talking about some of the risks associated with these compounds and where we find them. And I was quite surprised, shocked, dismayed to find that more than 98% of Americans have PFAS in their blood and some of these chemicals can remain in the body for years. What are the routes of excretion? I'm assuming possibly urine, but maybe also breast milk?
1: That's right. So as you mentioned, virtually all Americans contain traces of PFAS in our bodies, and we can be exposed to PFAS through food. In some communities, as you mentioned, drinking water can be a source of exposure because of contamination. Also, direct contact with consumer products, indoor air and dust that might pick up traces of PFAS from the products in our homes. Some PFAS linger in our bodies for many years. They can be reabsorbed by our kidneys and circulate within our blood. They're very difficult for our bodies to excrete these chemicals. Unfortunately, mothers can pass these chemicals along to their children. So we know that some portion of PFAS in a mother's body does get passed to her children during pregnancy, and they can also be passed along in breast milk.
0: Are they located or stored primarily in the body's fat tissue? This is a great question. and
1: one of many questions that researchers are, are trying to figure out. Where in the body do these accumulate? They're a little bit different than some other contaminants that seem to mostly be associated with the fat reserves in our body. PFAS tend to bind to proteins. So they do accumulate in, in blood and, and bind to proteins in the blood But not so much in the fat, but, again, this is a wide range of chemicals, and each one has its own slightly different characteristics. So we know PFOS and PFOA and other what we call long-chain chemicals accumulate in blood. Now, instead of these longer-chain compounds, manufacturers are making different shorter-chain or different alternative PFAS chemicals, and we don't actually know in our bodies where those might end up. But early evidence suggests that they may have different patterns of accumulation than the long-chain ones that have been more studied.
0: Has there been any movement to ban the production of these chemicals? And I'm assuming that with the production, the areas of the country where these compounds are produced, the workers are more likely to be contaminated with them. But has there been any policy movement to get these compounds banned?
1: So there have been shifts in production over time. You're absolutely right that workers in chemical manufacturing facilities have higher exposures, and people who live in communities near where PFAS chemicals are produced can have higher exposures because of contamination of the local environment. Some PFAS chemicals are no longer manufactured in the U.S., like PFOS and PFOA. They still are manufactured in other parts of the world, namely in China, but they're not made in the US anymore. They're still part of our environment and will remain so for for long periods of time. In their place, manufacturers are now creating other PFAS chemicals. And some scientists and advocacy groups would like to see more of a class-based approach to PFAS rather than treating these one at a time, just PFOS or just PFOA, restricting the use of the whole class of chemicals. And this is actually happening more at the local and the state level. So, for instance, the state of Washington and the city of San Francisco have banned PFAS in certain types of food packaging, and other states are considering similar regulations. And there are also retailers who are choosing not to sell products that contain PFAS. So recently the Home Depot announced that they would no longer sell carpets treated with PFAS-containing coatings.
0: That's fantastic. So the reason that I became interested in these compounds, or well, it's twofold. One, the nonstick pans were, of course, so popular, have been popular. And I recall working an extension at the time and being told that there's nothing to worry about with a Teflon-coated pan. It's totally safe as long as the Teflon is intact. And now I'm wondering, what should the recommendations really be with regard to a Teflon-coated pan? Even if it is intact, no chips, is it safe to use? Or do PFAS compounds, are they released from the Teflon, and does it get into the food? Mm -hmm.
1: I think this is another area where questions remain. Certainly, I would say the recommendation would be not to buy new Teflon pans because there are other alternatives for types of cookware that avoid these highly persistent chemicals. Uh, It's true that the, the Teflon molecules themselves are these very long, fluorinated carbon chains that are really much too big to be absorbed by the cells of our body. However, there are still concerns about the manufacturing of Teflon and Teflon pans once they get old and the Teflon is scraping off. There are also concerns about Teflon being overheated, so there's actually toxic fumes that can be created when a Teflon pan gets too hot, and birds are particularly vulnerable to the fumes that are produced from an overheated Teflon pan. I have to imagine that's not great for people either. So I would think that a, a Teflon pan that is not flaking off, that is not overheated, is unlikely be a major source of PFAS exposure, but the presence of them in products still raises concerns.
0: So, this is fascinating to me. So, an overheated Teflon pan releases fumes that were found to be toxic to birds. How was that discovered? <laughs> I actually don't
1: know how that was discovered, but often the manufacturers of the pans have that warning information. I don't know who first discovered that.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, it's so interesting when you find out who was harmed and how, and how was this research done? Like, who even thought to connect those dots? So the first issue, as I mentioned, that piqued my interest about these compounds had to do with the Teflon pans that have been around for a long time. But the second piece of research that started coming up in my inbox that really concerned me had to do with these wrappers that are ubiquitous when you go out and buy food. So fast food wrappers, the boxes say that the French fries come in, the microwave popcorn bags, the boxes where that pizza comes in, anything that has sort of this nonstick coating. And then there was also another piece from the Silent Spring Institute that looked at all of the different fast food manufacturers and whether or not their wraps contained PFAS. And I couldn't believe all of them essentially came up. All of the popular fast food restaurants that people would know, KFC, McDonald's, Pizza Hut, Starbucks, all of these, the researchers found fluorinated chemicals in the food wrap. So tell me more about some of this research and how it came about. How did we discover this?
1: So, you're referring to a paper that Silent Spring Institute and others published in 2017 where we looked for PFAS in fast food wrappers. And we found that they were common, especially in papers, kind of that wax paper consistency kind of paper, say for cookie pouches or wrappers on burgers or burritos or sandwiches. We did find PFAS in some of the thicker kinds of boxes, say to hold french fries or certain types of sandwiches, but the papers were most likely to contain PFAS. And these chemicals are added to make the papers grease-proof, so that when we're eating on the go that our hands don't get greasy. Unfortunately, those chemicals are likely to persist long after we finish using those products. Other studies have also found that nearly all microwave popcorn bags in the U.S. have PFAS. Again, they're Added to ensure that the the buttery additives in that microwave popcorn doesn't seep through the paper and other types of packaging as well. You mentioned pizza boxes can also contain PFAS.
0: Well, that's just one more reason to eat more meals at home and not out on the road. I know that Americans are just, we like our fast food, but gosh, this is just another really good reason to eat less fast food. I need to take one break because we're at our halfway point and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Dr. Laurel Shader. She is a research scientist at Silent Spring Institute, where she leads the Institute's water quality research on highly fluorinated chemicals, what we've been calling PFAS here. In our discussion, she is known as a national expert on these contaminants. Well, What would you like our listeners to know about these compounds?
1: I think it's important for consumers to know that PFAS pose health concerns, that PFAS exposures have been linked with a wide range of health effects. And I think it's important for your listeners to know that there are some things that we can do to reduce our exposures to these chemicals. They're common in many everyday products such as microwave popcorn bags, and that seems like an easy one. I personally like to make popcorn on the stove rather than using microwave popcorn bags. So there are some relatively easy ways that we can avoid PFAS. When we're getting new carpets or furniture, we can decide to skip the stain-resistant coatings. But there are also many uses that are more difficult to avoid. When we go out to eat fast food, there's really no way to tell by looking at a wrapper whether it's likely to have PFAS or not. So I think that it's important to remember there are things that we can do collectively. There are many states that are considering different types of regulations, for instance, banning PFAS and food packaging, which is one way not only to reduce our exposures while we're using those products, but to reduce the amount of PFAS getting out into the environment. And we can tell retailers where we buy things that we don't want, PFAS or other chemicals that are raise health concerns and are very persistent. We don't want to buy products that contain those types of chemicals. And in fact, retailers are taking the lead such as Home Depot to not sell carpets or not sell other products that contain
0: PFAS. Mm -hmm. The American president's cancer panel report that came out in 2009, 2010 that recommended that every American filter their water. And This goes beyond, is probably including, but also beyond PFAS. It's also all kinds of contaminants that end up either through agricultural methods or industrial methods that contaminants get into our water supply. And one of the recommendations from the Silent Spring Institute is also to use a solid block or granulated carbon filters to purify our drinking water. Is there a kind of filter that you would recommend more over another in terms of helping to protect the end consumer?
1: So you mentioned the President's Cancer Panel that recommended water filtration, and I believe that was motivated, at least in part, by the potential for disinfection byproducts in water that is chlorinated or treated with other chemical disinfectants. Mm -hmm. Um, Chlorine-based chemicals are very important for public health to make sure that pathogens that harmful bacteria and other microorganisms don't grow in the water supply and expose us to potentially harmful diseases however those those same chemicals can react with the other chemicals in the water and create cancer-causing chemicals so that recommendation was intended uh, at least in part to filter out those contaminants or those they're called disinfection byproducts right at the point of use when people are drinking that water For consumers, whether you're on a private well or a public water supply, I think it's really important for people to learn more about where their water comes from and whether there are any contaminants in their water. So for people who rely on a public water supply, that type of information is available in annual reports. They're called consumer confidence reports that each public water supply produces each year. For people who have a private well, they're on their own for, for monitoring their water quality, and it is important to do at least some basic testing on a regular basis to keep an eye on water quality. When consumers are considering buying a water filter, it's important to know about the types of contaminants that are in their water because there's no one type of filter that will get everything out of your water. So it's mm-hmm. important to know what, what specific contaminants are of concern We know that in in communities across the country, people are discovering that PFAS are showing up in their drinking water, and this can be related to the use of certain firefighting foams at military bases or airports or other fire training areas. It can also be related to certain industries, and public water supplies often take steps to remove PFAS from the water, either shutting off those contaminated sources or installing new types of treatment. But consumers can also take steps in their own home if they're concerned about PFAS and want to remove them from their water. The two main types of treatments that are effective for PFAS are activated carbon and reverse osmosis. So activated carbon comes in two main varieties. You know, we're all familiar with filter pitchers that have those little black particles. That's activated carbon. And then there are also solid carbon block filters. These are often under people think. Uh, They both kind of work on the same principles. The solid carbon block filter has more surface area for trapping more of the the contaminants. Activated carbon is very effective at removing PFAS and PFOA and other long-chain PFAS, which have been the focus for drinking water guidelines. Over the lifetime of the filter, they're not as good at removing the shorter chain replacement chemicals that are now more commonly used Reverse osmosis does a better job of removing both the long chain and the shorter chain alternative compounds. It is more expensive and it does create a stream of wastewater because there are several gallons of water produced that aren't used for every gallon of clean water. Mm-hmm. More expensive. So there are trade offs to every type of filtration technology. But again, it's important to learn more about what's in your water and then figure out what type of treatment makes sense for you.
0: Right. And do typical municipalities monitor for PFAS? So this is a
1: great question. So currently there are no federal drinking water standards for any PFAS chemicals. So there is no ongoing monitoring required at the federal level under the Safe Drinking Water Act. There was a nationwide program from 2013 to 2015 that required some testing of large public water supplies. But that was just for that period of time, and there has been no routine monitoring required after that. There are some states that are stepping up and creating their own standards and creating requirements for more testing. So in some states, water supplies do have more recent information about their PFAS levels. So it depends a lot where you live.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, this is so disturbing, really. When you start thinking about all of the different contaminants out there and how we all want to protect our families, and ultimately, from my perspective anyway, it, it seems that policy from a national level would be the way to go, but unfortunately, we are not living in a good time for upping regulations to protect public health, so we're on our own to a large degree, which is why I think your tips to reduce exposure are so important. I want to get back to food packaging for a moment because that's something that's so near and dear to our hearts. We eat every day, three times a day at least. Let's talk about some alternatives. If we make a sandwich, say, from home, we decide, I'm not going to go to the fast food restaurant. I'm going to make my own sandwich. I'm not a big fan of wrapping foods in plastic wrap. What about wax paper or parchment paper? Do you know if those two items are free of PFAS?
1: That's a great question. I do believe that those are free of PFAS, although I'm not aware that that most of them have been tested. I share your concern about plastic wrap and plastic boxes. There are also steel reusable containers that can be reused rather than paper or plastic that might get thrown out.
0: Yes. I always recommend using those glass containers because they can go from freezer to microwave. They're not going to shatter and it's so much more healthy from a from a public health perspective to use something that's inert. So like you say, the stainless steel water bottles instead of plastic and glass containers. Absolutely. I, I don't send
1: them my, when my children go to school, though, I don't put glass containers in their lunchbox in case they throw their backpack around. But there are other options like the steel sandwich containers and snack containers as well.
0: That's right.
1: I think we, you know, thinking about what our our grandparents might have used going back to more natural or more inert kinds of products in general is a good
0: rule of thumb. Well, I know that a lot of your research prior to coming to Silent Spring was looking at mercury in water. And I wonder, with regard to the PFAS in the water, with mercury, every state has a warning for pregnant women. Don't eat so many fish servings per week or per month if you're pregnant. Should we assume the same for PFAS, especially if we are finding PFAS in the water? Should we naturally assume that they would be in fish?
1: So within this broad class of PFAS chemicals, there are some that bioaccumulate and can increase in concentration as you go up the food chain, just like mercury. And there has been some testing for PFAS and the long chain PFAS like EFOS and other longer compounds tend to be the ones that accumulate to higher degrees in fish. There's also been some testing of deer in Michigan near a a location with high contamination. So at this point, there has been some testing, I'd say not very extensive testing of PFAS in the environment. There is certainly the potential for bioaccumulation and I think that's a challenge for state agencies when high levels are found, how to translate that into recommendations related to actual fish consumption.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you find that many public health departments describe or talk about these compounds as much as they do, say, mercury? Mercury has been
1: a, a contaminant of concern for much longer, and we have a lot more information and more specific guidance in terms of Acceptable levels. It's also just one chemical, whereas PFAS is this broad family of chemicals. Again, each one accumulates to a different degree in different types of organisms. So I think there's still a lot more information out there about mercury. And in some cases, where you know, high levels of PFAS have been found in fish, those are at the top of the food chain, those are also fish that accumulate high levels of mercury. So the guidance that has already been issued related to mercury consumption may be protective for PFOS as well, or PFAS chemicals. But over time, scientists are learning more and more about potential effects at lower levels. And so those guidelines may need to be reconsidered in the future.
0: Well, Dr. Shader, I am going to provide links to... The wonderful information that's available on this topic at the Silent Spring Institute, I think it's some of the best that I have certainly found online. Is there any message that you want to leave our listeners with in the 30 seconds we have left?
1: I think PFAS are a really important class of chemicals for us to be aware of. They are somewhat unique in that they're not just in our environment and in water, but they're in our food and in our consumer products as well. So it's important for all of us to educate ourselves about what's in the products that we're buying, what's in our drinking water, and to let our elected officials and retailers know that we are concerned about these chemicals and we're looking for them to take collective action to protect everyone's health.
0: That's wonderful. And I will provide a link again to your website. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Laurel Shader. She is a research scientist at Silent Spring Institute, where she leads the Institute's water quality research on highly fluorinated chemicals, also known as PFAS and other contaminants of emerging concern. Thank you so much for explaining this issue to us.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.